Welcome to the Faith Driven Athlete Podcast. If you're an athlete, coach, or sports fan driven by your faith, then you're in the right place. The best way to stay connected is to sign up for our free monthly magazine at faithdrivenathlete.org. We'll compile the best videos, articles, and resources written by athletes across the country and bring them to you once a month. This podcast, of course, doesn't exist without you, our community. So while you're on the site, please send us any thoughts you have about how this podcast might better serve you and any questions that you might have for our guests. And then the other piece, you know, we always talk about in sports, how do you handle adversity? What do you do when you get knocked down? What we rarely talk about is how do you handle success? And where the believer can handle success is just staying humble. And that ability to stay humble and live in humility, and it can allow that person, that Christian athlete to succeed for a lot longer because he doesn't let it go right to his head and is not so self-focused. Welcome back, everyone, to the Faith Driven Athlete Podcast. We're excited to share today's episode with you because it's a little different than some of our other shows. We know you're used to hearing from athletes themselves, but today we're talking to two sports agents for a behind-the-curtain look, if you will, into the business side of sports. Mike McCartney has represented guys like Kirk Cousins and Kurt Warner, and he grew up on the sidelines with his dad, Coach Bill McCartney, founder of Promise Keepers and coach of the national championship Colorado Buffaloes. While Molly Fletcher, often referred to as the Jerry Maguire of female sports agents, has represented John Smoltz, Tom Izzo, and is a leader of the conversation at the intersection of sports and leadership principles. We think their take on faith and sports is unique, and we think you will too. Let's listen in. Mike and Molly, awesome to have you guys on the show. Thank you for joining. Absolutely, a pleasure. Yeah, great to be on with you guys. Thanks. We love highlighting the stories of athletes and people we see on the field, and that's been the subject of a lot of our podcasts, but increasingly we're starting to look at the business of sports too. And that's one of the things that I've increasingly been excited about. As a business guy myself and somebody who didn't play on Sunday, I love the marketing and the business and the negotiations behind the scenes that make this world of sports come alive. And so this is a special episode for us because this is where sports and business collide. And we know that you both have a unique angle into both sports and business. And so we want to get started with you, Molly. We want to talk a little bit about your background and how you came into this. You are known in the industry as the female Jerry Maguire. And I've got to be careful with dated movie references here, but Jerry Maguire, of course, the iconic movie with Tom Cruise. And we're talking to the female version of Jerry Maguire. Molly, tell us about yourself. How'd you get started? And what does it mean to be the female Jerry Maguire. I mean, maybe that's the title that you want to ascribe to yourself. Maybe that's not fair, but I think most people have a very favorable impression of Jerry Maguire. Yeah, well, people often ask me, how do you feel about that? You know, and it's just a quick, simple way for people to get a sense for the work that I did for almost 20 years. And, you know, I grew up in East Lansing, Michigan with twin brothers that were older than me, two incredible parents, went to Michigan State and had the opportunity to be a student athlete there, which I am forever grateful for. And then moved down to Atlanta. I was, I did. Yes. And now I try to keep up with my 17 year old daughter out there. So I moved down to Atlanta to find a job in sports. And I didn't know at, you know, 22, what that meant. And, you know, I tell the story a lot. I negotiated for free rent in exchange for teaching tennis at an apartment complex, which helped my two grand that I came to Atlanta with last 
a little bit longer. And, you know, I did a couple different things at the Super Bowl host committee and the Atlanta committee for the Olympic Games. And then I got an opportunity to work at a small agency in Atlanta and really primarily bringing endorsement and appearance deals to the couple coaches and the athlete that we had, a baseball player. And then, you know, just really leaned into the opportunity to try to grow the business and started with baseball and then golf and then college coaches and NBA coaches. And so it was an incredible journey and one I'm grateful for. And so never did football. So never had any football players. So never had to get in the Mike's world. So that was good, probably. (laughs) (laughs) So and you guys have known each other beforehand, correct? No. No, this is the first time. No, we don't know each other. Oh, great. Well, one of the great joys is bringing together people who have, or God has put into the same world and there's something from collaborating and maybe encouraging and challenging each other. Um, Let me get back to Molly. You are vocal in the community. You're a leader. You've got a podcast of your own. So you're on the other side of the mic now. Give us an overview, if you can, about what you see in the world of sports right now. You're talking to lots of athletes. You're talking to coaches. You're in the mix of things. Before we go backwards into your faith journey, we want to get a sense from you about what are you seeing in the world of sports right now? What are the trends that you're excited about? What are the trends maybe that have you a little bit concerned? Well, I mean, I think, you know, it depends on if you're talking about sports at the college level or at the professional level. I mean, I think we're seeing college level sports really you know, being professionalized at some level. And, you know, that as somebody who was a student athlete and I'm super grateful for that journey is it's just an interesting thing to watch evolve, to watch it change. The impact that sports has on kids today, you know, to me, sports is such an incredible metaphor for life. The things that it teaches us as young kids to me is just remarkably powerful. And I think, you know, unfortunately at some level, because kids are specializing so quickly, we're losing some of the opportunity for kids to lean into all the gifts of sports. The competitive nature of it now is so intense. And Mm -hmm. the single focused athlete, you know, you got 12 and 13 year old guys throwing sliders too much. (laughs) And what does that do to their arm later? And so, you know, that to me breaks my heart a little bit because I think sports is just a powerful thing. And when we lose all its gifts, because we're focusing too much on maybe short term goals on achievement and not you know, maybe fulfillment, the impact there is significant. And then I think you see, you know, with social media and those things, I mean, I remember so distinctly with my athletes when Twitter sort of started and I looked at a couple of my players and I'm like, hey, there's this thing called Twitter. You know, I think we need to buy your name. You know, we got to get it, right? (laughs) What do you mean? What is it? Well, what is it? So I'm going to tell people what I'm doing all the time. I mean, that's weird. And I'm never doing that. And then, you know, now they've got 3 million followers or however many million followers on there. So, you know, there's opportunities that are created certainly for athletes and coaches through social media, and there's certainly really big challenges. And so navigating all that, both as an athlete or a coach, and certainly as their agent, is incredibly important. One of the things that you shared in your story before is that the first contract you negotiated was in Atlanta when you exchanged tennis lessons for free rent. Have you always been a strong negotiator? And what was the best negotiation you made in the teenage years? And maybe now as you've got a teenage daughter, Maybe you can kind of reflect on that about the ways that maybe you negotiated things and the way she's doing the same with you. For sure. You know, yeah, I tell that story because I only had about 2000 bucks when I came to Atlanta and, you know, I'm 750 miles away from really my two best friends in the world, my parents. And, Mm. you know, I needed that two grand to last as long as possible. Otherwise, you know, I wasn't in an environment where my parents were going to send me money. So I needed to make it last. And so You know, I think I learned to negotiate really in some parts from my parents, you know, who really tried to instill in me the confidence to ask for what you want in life and to do it with class, do it with integrity, 
but to do it and that that's how we can continue to evolve and grow and potentially even contribute. And so, you know, whether it was in line at the grocery store when we'd be checking out, my mom would have, you know, 20 expired coupons and she would just work the cash register lady to death to try to get her to take as Mm -hmm. many as she could just to come out and be so proud that she saved, you know, $4 and 30 cents. And, you know, for her, it, it was the money, but it was also the opportunity to sort of lean into those moments. So I think they taught me to ask for what I want in a way that is fun and kind and again, authentic. And yeah, I mean, we have three teenage daughters now, 17 and 16 year old twins. And, you know, the good news is I hope and I pray that they're soaking all this sort of stuff up along the way. And hopefully it'll help, you know, strengthen who they are and how they show up and contribute, you know, in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Mike, I want to go over to you. Many of our listeners are familiar with your dad, Bill McCartney. For our younger side of the audience, he led Colorado to a national championship as part of starting the Promise Keepers Ministry, which is a very, very big deal. What was life like growing up for you in the home of a coach? Was there a moment when you decided at the sidelines that that wasn't going to be your path? Oh, no, no. You eat, sleep, and drink football growing up as a coach's kid. At least I did. I love sports. I played football, basketball, baseball year round. There wasn't a day we weren't, me and my brothers, doing something sports-wise, going to every game, going to many practices. So it never even occurred to me to do anything but be in the game of football, to be honest, because I was just immersed into it from day one. Mm -hmm. But you chose a career as an agent, and having seen your dad's life as a coach and maybe some of the ups and the downs of that, was there a point in time as you just looked at everything that was going on in athletics and said, I think that maybe I'm going to go a different path rather than coaching? Well, I started coaching in the late 80s, early 90s, and then I was hired by the Chicago Bears as a pro scout in 92. So my job was to sit in a dark room and study football from sunup to sundown which was a fun life. Uh, And then I got married and I wanted to spend a little more time with my wife. So that was a challenge. I started making boys and I got hired by the Eagles in 98. And my third year there, we played the Giants in the playoffs. We got beat and I was driving home from North Jersey to South Jersey. My sons at the time were four, two and one. And I started taking inventory with my life. I would not recommend taking inventory after a tough loss, <laughs> but that's what I did. On the New Jersey Turnpike. On the New Jersey Turnpike. And it hit me like a ton of bricks on that drive home. I was going to wake up in 20 years and ask who raised my sons because I wasn't home. Mm-hmm. I would wake up at 4.30 in the morning. I'd get to the office. I'd have some quiet time, and I'd just watch football all day. I'd get it home in time to put the boys to sleep and look at my wife, and I'd fall asleep. And it reminded me of my mom's words every August 1st, football's here, goodbye, dear. And we didn't see my dad for about seven or eight months. Now, he was home here and there, but we didn't see him. So Mm. to answer your question, I think that was a big moment. And I just felt like I never regretted being a coach's kid. I loved it. I loved being around the game. But maybe two generations of McCartney's missing out on their dad didn't make sense. So started thinking it was probably time to move on. And that's what really precipitated my move to becoming an agent. So Mike, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring back something that I remember as a kid growing up. And obviously it's something you live through. And and I think a lot of us are living through right now. ESPN has been showing a lot of these classic games. And so I've got to ask about the Hail Mary and the Michigan versus Colorado game. Were you there? What are some of your favorite memories from that game or maybe some others that your dad was coaching? 
I was there. I was working for the Bears. So it was a real fun weekend to take my wife. It was her first ever college football game. And she sat in the stands with my mom and grandma. I was on the field, on the sidelines. And it was an emotional game because we grew up in Michigan. My dad coached under Bo for eight years. And so, you know, anytime they played that fight song, that's just like seeped into your life, your mind. So it was just really emotional to be on the sidelines with over 100,000 fans. And the game itself was really frustrating because every time Colorado got something going, we had a holding call on us. And, you know, we get to the goal line and Cordell Stewart, our quarterback, fumbles. We're down 12 in the fourth quarter. And it just, we kept clawing back. And I do remember we called a timeout with six seconds left and we're down five points. And you could hear somebody from the stands yell out, hey, McCartney, where's your God now? And of course, we know what happened next. Wow. Cordell Stewart wow. unleashes a 74-yard bomb and Colorado catches it for a Hail Mary. And I'm just like everybody running on the field like a crazy kid. And then um, after the game, I finally see my wife and I said, honey, this is why we love college football. It's like this every week. What did she know? So <laughs> <laughs> those are fun memories, though. Uh, that was uh, his last year, 94. So to be able to go into Ann Arbor and win that way was amazing. Well, that's great. And as a Spartan fan, I think Molly and I can say that we joined <laughs> in celebrating with you watching Colorado beat the Amazing Blue. Might have had a conflict of interest in them, Cartney home, but not in ours. Now, here's the question I've been burning to ask, Mike, is how close was dad to come into East Lansing? Because there was a season there, I can't remember which coaching change, that rumors at least was close that he almost headed to East Lansing. So the day before the last game in 94, on Friday morning, I'm working for the Bears. He calls me and says, uh, or I call him, I can't remember, but he says, hey, Mike, I'm going to resign tomorrow, and I'm going to take the Michigan State job. And I'm like, wait, what? And I knew he had had some issues, but I didn't know it was going this far. Well, when I'm at the Bears, I've got media guides for every college. Back then, there's no internet. So I go into our media guides, and I see where Michigan State plays Nebraska in their first game the following year. So I only sure. live three and a half hours from East Lansing. I'm getting real excited now. Yeah. And I call my mom and I said, hey, mom, can you believe Michigan State opens with Nebraska next year? <laughs> and she was, she was not in a good mood. And she says, I don't care. And I'm not going. And I'm like, oh, boy. <laughs> and so then about in the next few minutes, the uh, president of Promise Keepers walked into my dad's office said, uh, I'm taking my shoes off as a sign that I'm coming from the Lord. You are not to take the Michigan State job. You are to retire from coaching. And it got into a big reason why, and that's what happened. Wow. Guys, I appreciate <laughs> you sharing that a little bit about your background. I want to push in to a little bit of just the life of a sports agent. You talked about some of that, Mike, of just kind of what caused you to pivot. But so oftentimes we see the big contract, we see the big deal, the free agent side of things, and even free agency has grown over the years. But just walk us through what is the life of an agent? What is most of your time spent with? Besides the Sports Center highlights of that big deal, what does the rest of life and world as an agent look like? And Molly, why don't you start us off? Well, I think Mike could probably attest to it. 80, 90% of it is navigating, you know, their life. I mean, 10% is sort of talking to them oftentimes about maybe, you know, their arm slot, right? Or <laughs> things like that. I mean, it's navigating what is a really unique and short often window of time. And to me as an agent, you have to take that really seriously. I mean, these guys make, and 
four, 10, 12 years, what most of us make in a lifetime. And, you know, the clock is ticking all the time. And so maximizing that window of time for them on and off the field is imperative. And, you know, so what is it like? I mean, with the agency that I worked with, we had about 300 athletes, coaches, and broadcasters. I had a team of about nine agents that ran point on the different verticals, NBA coaches, college coaches, broadcasters, baseball players. And, you know, so my mornings would start with what we called news and notes, you know, so I'd get into the office and I'd have my team would pull so you could see everything that happened the night before, because you can't just know that a guy went two for four, you know, you got to know, because maybe that second knock was in the bottom of the ninth and was the game winning home run, right? So you've got to really be in their world. And I would spend every morning sort of standing there being each one of the athletes and coaches that I sort of ran point with and try to get in their head, get in their heart. What are they worried about? What are they excited about? What are they anticipating? You know, where are they? What's coming up? If there, if it was a baseball player, if it was a golfer, if it was a broadcaster, all that. And then, you know, and then you're worried about, obviously, their off-the-field deals. And then the phone rings, you know, constantly. And so guys are calling you on the way to the park or broadcasters are calling you on the way to the booth or they get there and something's not right, you know, or they had a conversation that kind of made them anxious or scared or, you know, a tour player is trying out a new putter or a new driver or somebody's throwing them a new ball to try. And so they want to talk to you about that or a coach is upset because they're worried they're going to get fired or, you know, a baseball player calls you because the lineup just went up and they're not happy because they're in the seven hole and they're not supposed to be in the seven hole. Right. So it's just all day. And the phone would stop at about 11 at night. And so, you know, it's a 24 seven deal. And my philosophy was to pour into them as much as I could when I could. So that when I got home, particularly as my girls were younger, you know, they would honor that window of time that I needed to be with my girls. And they know that if I didn't take the call, it was probably because I was bathing a child or feeding someone or putting someone to bed, but that they knew that I would circle back and get back with them as quickly as I could. So, you know, it's 24 seven. And that's why I think who you choose to represent and who you choose to work with is incredibly important. I mean, I always wanted to look down at my phone and see their name and be excited and like them and love them and wanted them at my wedding and wanted them there when my girls were born and, you know, all those moments. And so as much as it's incredibly competitive business and as much as you're recruiting these guys and gals, I think it's equally as important to be selective about who you choose to take on because you're potentially representing them through, you know, injuries and trades and releases and really tough moments. And, You've got to love them whether you're making a buck or whether you're making a hundred million dollars and you've got to lean into them and love them and support them. And you got to lean into them, whether you're at an all-star game or whether they're on the disabled list or the injured reserve list. I mean, you got to love them as much in the big moments as in the challenging moments. And they need you really more when they're on the DL or the IR than they do when they're at the all-star game, right? When everything's going well. So that's just a quick yeah. view inside of the window. I'm sure Mike has a different perspective or, yeah, Mike, Similar, talk, I'm not sure. talk to us about that. Because, I mean, you're working with guys like Kirk Cousins and others, but you're also working with your guy that's trying to make it in the combine. Talk to us about a little bit of that. I'm also interested in your perspective on some of the things what Molly said of just the phone was always ringing. And you talked about not wanting to be that second generation of missing time at home. How has that been like trying to balance that with kids? I'll start with that question. I had a personal rule 
that when I got home, unless it was a player, I wasn't going to answer the phone. And I was going to try and honor that my time at home was for my family. And for the most part, I did a good job of that. My kids are grown up. My youngest is going to be a senior next year. And I added a little daughter. And of course, she's a senior in high school. So she doesn't want a lot to do with dad right now. <laughs> but you have to put some ground rules in place, I think, as a parent. And, you know, I think where my life maybe was a little different from Molly's. I'm just in football. And I would characterize it as every day is different. You know, there's no two days that are the same. You can wake up with plans and things can quickly change because of a phone call, whether it's from a player or about a player. So being able to think quick on your feet and try to game plan what's best for the player is what's really important. I agree with Molly. One of the keys is who you represent is so important. I've placed a huge premium on representing high character guys. And my litmus Mm -hmm. test sort of was, could I leave him with my family? And I signed one player early in my career that I would not have left with my family. And it ended up being a bad experience. So it was a quick payday and it wasn't worth it. So I've been really fortunate. I almost always represent team captain types. And with that, my life's a little easier, to be honest. I don't have some of the headaches that other agents do. I, I Honest to God, this is my 20th year being an agent. And my phone has never rang after nine o'clock at night from a player, not once in almost 20 years. So that speaks to their character and who they are. And, you know, that's really important. The phone does ring a lot. So, you know, I'm with Priority Sports. So we have a great staff and we've got our own marketing department and client services. And it allows me to really focus on where I'm gifted and that's the game of football. And so that's where I try to spend my time is talking to players about their game, their strengths, things they need to get better at, work at, interpreting. A lot of time is spent on interpreting what a coach says to them. <laughs> you know, like Molly said, you know, when, they, when they're expecting the bat cleanup and they're dropped the seventh, there's all kinds of scenarios <laughs> in football that are the same. You know, the strength yeah. coach can say one thing and, you know, it can get a player off, you know, kind of out of whack a little bit. So helping them interpret. And the fact that I was on the team side and grew up on the team side, I think helps me a lot because I can put myself back in on that side and try to get a feel for, you know, what is really going on. The NFL stands for the no feedback league. So trying to get (laughs) uh, players to understand what their role is. Sometimes, you know, an agent can play a role in that. And I try and do that as well. Tell me a little bit more about what that looks like in the, in in the NFL and particular league and what you mean by not being able to get feedback? Well, when I was on the team side, I would go into the locker room and have conversations with players. And I think I developed a reputation as being really honest at all times with players. And so a lot of guys would Mm -hmm. confide that they didn't understand their role. And it just sort of hit me when I got to Philadelphia and I was the director of pro personnel that, you know, guys really didn't understand where they stood in the team's eyes. And so I made it a pledge. I was just going to be really honest with guys, whether it hurt their feelings or not. I was never going to be mean-spirited about it, but, you know, guys can respect the truth. You know, they may not always like the truth, but they want the truth. So when I became an agent, I just knew that that was going to be an issue for some guys. And, you know, teams have so many coaches, so many staff members that communicating with the player sometimes is the last thing an organization thinks about. So, you know, I think that's where we can definitely play a role. And, you know, I know every decision maker in the NFL and, when I see something that doesn't make sense 
or when a player is upset, a receiver hasn't gotten enough balls, you know, I can call the appropriate person in the team and have a conversation to get the team's perspective and then go to the player and say, okay, let's talk about this. You know, here's why you're not involved in the passing game like you want to be. Now, let's put together a plan, how to get more involved. Some of it's your attitude. Some of it is how you handle situations. And those are delicate at times, you know, because you're dealing with professional athletes who just sometimes can't handle, you know, a negative comment. So I think that's a great point, Like, I mean, I think that's one of the most important things is that a lot of these athletes don't have people around them that will tell them the truth. Even their wives won't tell them the truth sometimes. And I think what Mike's alluding to, which I couldn't agree with more, is when they hire you at some level, you've got to be honest with them. You've got to tell them the truth because sometimes people don't have the courage to do it, even sometimes their coaches and even some of the people closest to them. And that's why I think as a good agent, you can't be afraid to tell them the truth with love, with support, and with, to Mike's point, a game plan on how to be more involved in the passing game, if that's the gap or whatever it is. So what does that look like in the contract negotiation to speak truth and love, both to your client, the person that you're representing, and the teams that you're negotiating with? What does it look like to have a faith-driven or redemptive perspective in the contract negotiation part of being an agent? Well, I think the first thing is I'm always going to be honest. I want to have credibility anytime that I speak, whether it's with the player or the team. And so being honest is paramount. And yet I recognize that I'm in an industry that is not honest. You know, there's so many games being played by agents and teams. And we're kind of seeing it right now with Major League Baseball and just that negotiation between the owners and the Players Association. And it certainly trickles down to the agent side. So I knew that I was going to always be completely honest. And probably my most proud moment as an agent, I was at the Combine. This was right before the lockout in 2011. And I'm having lunch with a negotiator for a player. We're trying to extend his contract. And he and I actually prayed together for lunch. And then I made a comment to him, you know, hey, I know I can get X amount of dollars from any other team because I was at the Combine and meeting with every other team. And he literally said to me, Mike, if it was any other agent, that would go in one ear and out the other. But because it's you, I believe you. And that just reinforced that being honest at all times is just critically important. You know, having credibility just means the world to me as an agent. And that goes with players. You know, sometimes players think they're worth $10 and they're not. (laughs) They're worth eight, (laughs) you know, and the club's offering Mm -hmm. three. So, you know, those are challenges and you got to work through them. But From the player's side, I think educating them is really important long before negotiation. You know, the better the player, the more education, I think, because the bigger the money. So we spend a lot of time educating the the, the player on why his market should be where it is and what that looks like. And it's much more than one conversation. So the more you can educate a guy when it actually comes, the better you are. The same thing can go rings true when you're dealing with a player that you can foresee the club is going to come to you for a pay cut. You know, players don't want to get surprised. So I just try to have real conversations with guys. Hey, we need to talk about if so-and-so is going to come to us about a pay cut. I'm not taking a pay cut. I understand, but let's at least have a conversation and talk about it. So I think educating the player is really important and being extremely honest. And then the last thing I'll say about the contracts, when you are honest and you've done your homework, and you have the facts in front of you, you know, and I think teams over time will develop a trust and a respect for the agent. And 
you know, a lot of agents just make crazy demands that just don't make any sense. And, you know, I, I just, I've never tried to go there. You can ask for a lot. You can ask for maybe a little bit more than the player is worth, but you got to at least, you know, have a reason behind it. And again, being honest and having that credibility helps that go a long way. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think, you know, to Mike's point, I mean, you got to lead with the facts and you got to start those conversations early because you get some guys that never thought they'd make $10 million, right? Or 15 or whatever the number is. And they get that first number, which you as an agent know is low, but they want to grab it because they're scared it's all going to go away. And if you can show them the comp so they can see, you know, hey, this is really where we should slot in. This is what makes sense to me is important. So to his point, I think having lots of those conversations early on and really leaning into the facts. And I think it's incredibly important too, to know what matters most to the player because everybody's different. And, you know, I remember we were negotiating Ernie Johnson's contract, uh, TV guy with uh, Turner and we were negotiating and Ernie's an incredible human being. And, you know, what mattered to Ernie was, you know, lots of things that weren't normal. You know, lots of guys want to make as much money as they can. And to EJ, what mattered was, flexibility, exposure for his son, Michael, who's severely disabled. Um, you know, he wasn't about grinding it to the last penny. He wanted to make sure there was money left for other guys. And so knowing what's in the head and the heart of the player or the talent to me is incredibly important, but you know, the facts are really, really powerful. And when you can help a second baseman understand, here's what all the other guys are making in the national league. You know, you get those phone calls, right? I had a guy who was, you know, 147 on the money list, and he goes out and plays a practice round with VJ, who's top 10 on the money list, and calls me up and tells me that VJ's getting, to use my, you know, 10 bucks in on-the-body deals, and why is he only getting five? Well, because VJ's top 10 on the money list in year 146. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you've got to be able to have the difficult conversations with your clients, again, with love and with honesty, because everybody else around them is telling them what they want to hear and they're, you know, telling them what they think they want to hear. And so you've got to be able to be sort of that truth teller with love. So true. And you're a hundred percent right, Molly. Every player is different. I often feel like there's yeah. two negotiations going on. There's certainly the negotiation <laughs> going on with the club, but there's absolutely a negotiation going on with the players sometimes. <laughs> right. And if not most times, you know, I can remember a player came to me and he's a really good defense player. And he said, Hey, the club's going to call you and they're going to give you an offer. And I like the offer. I think you should take it. And I just started laughing <laughs> and I'm like, well, first of all, how do you know this? Okay. Cause you shouldn't. Right. <laughs> and, right. and you know, what's the structure? Well, I don't know about that. Okay. So maybe there's more <laughs> to the story than, you know, thirdly, do you understand where it right. fits in the market? No, no, no. I just heard a number I liked. Okay. Well, let's start over. <laughs> so, right. And I then you say yes to that. And then it's on the ticker three days later with another guy that's his comp that's making 4X what he just got. And he's living at you because you took the deal he told you to take. <laughs> yeah. And so there are absolutely two negotiations going on most of the time. And, you know, as a guy that represents really high character guys, most of the time, for me, it's convincing them to stay in the negotiation. Let me do my job to get them a little bit more because they are satisfied. There are mm -hmm. times where it's like, oh, my gosh, there's no way I'm going to get that kind of money you're expecting me to get. You know, you don't even begin to live in that stratosphere. So that's where you got to get them back to being realistic. But I'm fortunate the guys I represent, I just get so many good guys that I can be real honest with them. And most of the time, that's enough, which is really cool. 
So I want to do a little bit of a pivot, but before I do that, I do want to call some attention to Molly's website. Molly has some great material and a framework about how to think about negotiations and a five-step process from setting the stage through to being willing to walk away. And so many of our listeners are business owners, and I want to just point people to the website that Molly's got. I want to pivot back to something about where you guys are in modern-day sports right now. And, and like anything in society, we often hear about the times when things don't go right, when things go wrong more than when they do go well. And we hear the exploitive stories of agents and clients. And I'd love to hear from you all about where you see, and we've already got a little bit of a sense of this, but I'd love for just kind of a freestyle riff from you all about where you see the agent profession being broken and where are the opportunities to redeem it. And then also, as each of you replies back to this, love to hear about how your personal faith informs the way that you look at the profession and the hopes you have for it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's broken in different ways depending on the sport. But I would say at the highest level, it's just honesty. I mean, you know, just having and operating with integrity, both with the teams that you're negotiating with and then certainly with the athletes that you represent. You know, I've heard agents who don't even tell their players where they are in the deal sometimes or agents that don't obviously lean in and follow all the rules and regulations that exist out there, again, based on sport, it's different. But, you know, at the highest level, I would say if I could snap my fingers and have, you know, more integrity, more honesty across the board, uh, obviously it would serve everybody well. And in football, to that point, I think where it's broke is in the recruiting. When I became an agent 20 years ago, we would recruit the players when they were in college and we would try and make a case why we were the best thing to happen to the business of their potential NFL career. And the focus was on our expertise and, you know, what we brought to the table. And it's really flipped in the last several years where the focus now is for the player to get every penny possible they can get out of the agent. And so we hear about, you know, what is your package? What are you going to offer me? Because we have to pay for all their training and what comes with paying for their training is we got to put them up in a place to stay. We got to get them a car to drive. We got to give them a per diem. Well, the per diem has grown exponentially in the last few years. And the sad thing is for me is if a player comes into the relationship and he's basing it solely on what he can get from the agent, it starts out as a broken relationship. So when the player now is in the league and things happen, you know, that relationship is not sound. And I think so many players are not happy with their agents. They don't trust them. There's not a genuine relationship there. And, you know, priority sports, we're not like that. We do our very best to make it about the relationship and not about that package. And of course, we have to play the game and give them enough of a package. But we're, as I say to players all the time, I'm not buying you. I have no interest in that. And I don't even want you to choose me, even if I give you the best per diem. I want you Mm -hmm. to choose me because you think I'm the best thing that's going to happen to you for the business of your career, that I'm going to care about you and I'm going to go through this journey with you every single day, no matter the highs or lows. And so that's where I see the industry in the football world for agents being broken. Unfortunately, it's getting worse each year. Yeah. And football, to me, is just one of the toughest in that regard. You both have an opportunity to work with a lot of young, accomplished leaders in society, leaders of their team, captains of their team, and you have these personal relationships where you like and, in some cases, love your clients. 
I would imagine that you haven't gone very far in your industries if you are known for being the over-the-top evangelist. And yet you both have a committed personal faith. I'd love to hear a little bit about how that manifests itself in the relationships that you have with some of these marquee players that are these cultural change agents. What does that look like and how do you approach that? So as I tell my story when I recruit, you know, I do share the story about that drive from the Meadowlands back to South Jersey where I was living. And in that story, I share on that car ride home where it hit me like a ton of bricks. I was going to miss out on my family. I started praying. I started asking God what to do next. You know, I knew that I wasn't going to go into pharmaceutical sales because that's not where I was gifted. I knew I was gifted in football and I prayed long and hard, you know, to God to lead me. And so I don't try to change my language with players. I do believe if I come on too strong with my faith, one of two things happens to many players, certainly not all, but many. One, they think that, and this was probably more earlier in my career, but I think they wondered if I would be strong enough at the negotiating table on their behalf. And then secondly, I think they would worry that they were hiring an accountability partner. And I had to convince them that I can be tough at the negotiating table because God calls me to be the best I can be at what I'm doing. And secondly, I'm not your accountability partner. I'm your business partner. Now, over time, that may grow into a friendship. And ultimately, what I've tried to do with players is for almost every player, there's a time and point in his career where something's going to happen where I can say, hey, do you mind if I pray about this situation before we talk about it? And that can happen many times, you know? And so I also just tell my story. I talk about my kids. I talk about going to church and I just don't change my language. I'm not trying to convince them to sign with me because I'm a Christian. I just hope it sort of organically, they have ears to hear if that's what they're interested in. Yeah. You all have worked with lots of different professional athletes at the peak of their game. And, and so I'm curious about any reflections that you have, and we'll stay with you, Molly, and then move on to Mike, about the difference between faith-driven athletes and those that don't have an active faith. I think just anecdotally, it seems that believers are over-indexed among NFL quarterbacks and in professional golfers, but maybe that's just that I'm looking through things through a lens of people that I know their own individual story. But I'm wondering, since you work with so many different athletes and understand what motivates them and what their mental and their emotional states are, whether you actually do see patterns where a faith-driven athlete has certain advantages, and maybe it's in some positions and maybe it's in some sports and different than others, but do you see patterns that emerge there? And I'm thinking about this through a number of different lenses, but particularly through the lens of the younger athletes that are listening to this and trying to understand, is their faith compatible with being an athlete? Is it an advantage to them as they proceed through their career? Is it a disadvantage? What do you all see? Molly, we'll stay with you. Well, I think somebody that's convicted in their faith would never say that it's a disadvantage, you know, in any way, because that's how they show up and serve and lead and live. But, you know, I think it shows up in lots of ways, right? I mean, whether it was a golfer um, and their families, you know, sometimes you see wives of golfers want to travel with their husband to every single tour event. Well, that can be pretty exhausting. I mean, I love my husband a lot, but I'm not sure I'd want him to sit in my office every day all day and watch me do what I do. It'd be kind of exhausting. But sometimes the spouse feels like potentially if it's not a man of faith that they need to be there with them in case they're tempted to make a bad decision. 
or if it's a baseball player whose wives try to travel with them, potentially because they're worried that he might be tempted to make a bad decision because the temptations are everywhere with these guys, particularly candidly with women on the road. So I think the ones that are strong and convicted and are inside of potentially supportive family systems that support their belief system, whether it's a wife or the parents, find their ability to navigate this fast-paced, quick world where there is nine out of 10 guys maybe making poor decisions. They've got to stay strong in their faith to be the person that's, you know, making the right decisions for both themselves, for God, and for their families, for their teams, for their communities that they represent. So, you know, in my opinion, it's a whole lot easier to live that way because they're so clear and convicted, then those temptations aren't even difficult. I mean, John Smoltz was one of my clients. I mean, you know, you come in from the road, you're on the road, the Braves are playing the Cubs, you walk back into the hotel lobby, there's 20 women in the lobby. I mean, it's unbelievable. That never even, I mean, John, it was just never even crossed his mind. He's just such an incredible human being and such a strong man of faith. Mm -hmm. So those moments that were tempting for a lot of guys, you know, weren't for John. Yeah. Uh, Mike, your reflections. Yeah, so I think the mind is powerful. And, you know, professional football players certainly hear a lot of great things being said about them from the outside world, but it's also shallow. And so I think adversity for athletes and how they respond to adversity is so key in life and as a success. But as far as adversity, you know, I think where a Christian has an advantage, it's Romans 8.28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So when adversity hits for the believer, he can take that deep breath and look up and say, okay, God, you know, this is going to work out. And it just allows him to stay in a better frame of mind. And then the other piece that, you know, we always talk about in sports, how do you handle adversity? What do you do when you get knocked down? What we rarely talk about is how do you handle success? And where the believer can handle success is just staying humble. And that ability to stay humble and live in humility, and it can allow that person, that Christian athlete, to succeed for a lot longer because he doesn't let it go right to his head and is not so self-focused. You know, so those are the couple of things that came to mind about. Mike, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, like John, as an example, or Ernie Johnson or, you know, Kirk Cousins, right? I mean, they're so squared away before the success hits them from a faith perspective that they know that it's all temporary. They know that it can go away at any moment. They know it's just, you know, they don't get sucked in and they stay humble throughout. It's incredibly powerful. And it's because they were squared away before that success happened. I couldn't agree with you more. That's such a great point. Guys, we are so grateful for the time that you spent with us here. We like to close out every episode just talking about where God has you in the season. You shared a little bit about the journey of the people that you're representing and working with. And talk to us about a specific passage in Scripture. Maybe it's this morning, this week, uh, that's really coming alive to you and and speaking to you on your journey. Molly, why don't you start us off and, and then Mike take the final word. Yeah. I mean, you know, for me, I think, um, you know, we're all in this world dealing with a lot of challenges right now with COVID, you know, from a societal perspective, so many challenges that are so real. And I just think we're at a time where we've got to lean into our faith more than ever and know that there is somebody in charge of this, um, that we've got to lean into it and grow from it. 
so that we can serve the people in our world, in this world, the very best we can inside of what are very real challenges for so many people at so many different levels in our world today and recognizing that, you know, that we're not in charge and lean into that as strongly as we can so that we can be a you know, beacon of light, if you will, for others as they lean into and deal with and navigate some very real challenges in our world today. No doubt, Molly. We're truly facing unprecedented times. And I've been thinking a lot about social justice issues and, you know, of course, represent many black athletes and they're hurting. They're really hurting right now. And I think of two verses that have come to mind in the last few days, Genesis 1:27. So God created human beings in his own image, in the image of God, he created them. He didn't just create white people in his image. He created black people, brown people, whatever. He created all people in his image. So, you know, I think a lot of people are struggling. I don't want to speak for anybody. It just seems like there are some people out there that are struggling, recognizing that black lives matter. Well, if you see God, made you in his image and he made your brown black brother in his image, then it's not hard to say black lives matter because (laughs) black lives matter to God. And, you know, the second verse that, you know, we're in a hypersensitive time and you make one mistake and it's seemingly the end of the world. And Romans 8, 1 says, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And those are just two verses that I've been chewing on and thinking about lately. And, you know, there are a lot of people hurting and they need to know that they're loved. We're all equal in God's eyes. And secondly, that we have made mistakes. Every one of us have made mistakes, but we're not condemned. If we have Christ in our heart, ultimately Christians fight from victory, not for victory. Such a great word, guys. I am so grateful for the time that you spent with us, the stuff that you shared about how God has used you in your careers to be an encouragement to the leaders that are in the field of sports and the next emerging generation, that they might take up some of the things that you guys just expressed, a a deep passion for seeing God redeem it in this space. So thanks for being a part of the podcast with us. As we finish each episode, we like to spotlight a ministry at the intersection of faith and sports. Sports Spectrum. It's a magazine and website ministry there to help equip, encourage, and use the platform of sports to share the gospel. You can learn more about Sports Spectrum at sportsspectrum.org. Thank you very much for joining us for today's show. The best way to stay connected with us is to sign up for our monthly newsletter at faithdrivenathlete.org. We're very grateful for the opportunity to serve the larger faith-driven community. Come check out our podcast at faithdrivenentrepreneur.org and also faithdriveninvestor.org. We, of course, want to hear from you. We derive great joy from interacting with many of you, and it's been very rewarding to see listeners coming to the sites from more than 100 countries. It's very important to us that you feel like this is your show and that you'll help make it something that best equips you on your journey, one that you're proud of and that you'll share with others. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the help of many of our friends, executive producer Justin Foreman and program director Johnny Wills. Music by Carl Kegwell. You can see more of his work at summerdregs.com. Audio and editing by Richard Barley of Cornerstone Church in San Francisco. 